Um, I'm Judy Seltz. I'm on the staff at ASCD, and it's my very special pleasure to introduce this morning's speaker to you. Stephanie Pace Marshall is the founding president of the Illinois Mathematics and Science Academy and is an internationally recognized pioneer and innovative leader, speaker, and writer. She served as president of ASCD and was founding president of the National Consortium of Specialized Secondary Schools in Mathematics, Science, and Technology and received the 2005 Order of Lincoln, Illinois' highest award for achievement. She's a contributing author to Learning and Understanding, Improving Advanced Study of Mathematics and Science in U.S. High Schools, Organizations for the Future, and Scientific Literacy for the 21st Century. In addition to writing over 35 articles, her book, The Power to Transform, Leadership that Brings Learning and Schooling to Life, was published in February 2006. Dr. Marshall received a BA from Queens College in New York City, a Master of Arts in Curriculum Philosophy from the University of Chicago, and PhD in Educational Administration and Industrial Relations from Loyola University of Chicago. She also holds three honorary doctorates. Dr. Marshall is a member of numerous corporate, civic, and philanthropic boards and serves as a consultant and speaker on educational transformation. At the invitation of President Clinton, Dr. Marshall became a member in 2007 of the Clinton Global Initiative, a nonpartisan cadre of the world's most influential leaders committed to strengthening the capacity of people throughout the world to meet the challenges of global interdependence. A little more close to home, Stephanie Pace Marshall has also served recently as co-chair with Hugh Price of ASCD's Commission on the Whole Child. It was my distinct privilege to work with her over a year as co-chair of that commission. So I can tell you that you are in for a rare treat this morning. Stephanie believes in the power of story and storytelling. I think you will enjoy tremendously her voice and her stories. Welcome, Stephanie Pace Marshall. We have brought new meaning to sharing the microphone. Thank you, Judy. And good morning, everyone. It is, it is truly not only a joy to be here, but I feel like I am coming home to to friends, so thank you all for being here today to enable us to stop for a moment together to reconnect to what I think we are all saying yes to and to claim what we imagine, a whole new story of schooling that will bring our children and their learning to life. Before I begin, I want to name others I have brought into the room. They come and stand with me now wherever I go, soul guides, reminders of why I am here, why I believe you are here, and why we are joining our voices on their behalf. They are the children of the future. Native Americans call them the seventh generation, the children of our children and theirs and theirs. 
and four generations after them. And I name their presence today so we do not forget that although unseen, they are holding their collective breath, watching us and listening to us, knowing that the future we enable our children to create now will be their inheritance. I titled my comments today, The Whole New Story and Landscape of Learning and Schooling, A Call to Leadership. So as Judy said, I come as a storyteller to tell the two stories I know best, the current story of learning and schooling as I see it, and the whole new story I believe we must create for our children now. But first, I want to shine a light on the concept and idea of story itself. We and our children live within a multitude of stories, personal and cultural narratives created by our families, our communities, the media, religion, politics, and schooling. And each of these contexts and the messages they send shape our self-concept, our self-confidence, and our sense of efficacy and belonging. In mythology, there are two dimensions of story. The overstory, which is the overt and recognized plot, and the understory, defined as the hidden and invisible movement of the soul of the main character. The understory is always the timeless one, and it's the enduring one because it's where meaning and identity are formed and it shapes our inner landscape and the road and path we travel. When we live a story, either unconsciously or consciously, it becomes the mental model. It becomes our conceptual map. It defines our worldview. It defines our possibilities and it defines what we become. Our mind does not distinguish between what it sees and what it remembers and what it remembers most that orient and situate us, our stories. I grew up in a very simple story. It was called the exception story. And it is the way I live. From the time I was a very little girl, my parents said to me, Stephanie, if there is an exception, it might as well be you. What a, great, what a great story to grow up in. Stories are the secret reservoir of values, Ben Oakry says. Change the stories individual or nations live by and tell themselves, and you change the individuals or nations. So beware of the stories you read or tell beneath the waters of consciousness they are altering your world. When we don't know the invisible story we're in, which we don't, when we're unaware of the hidden narratives of defining us, which I believe we are, we lose our choices. And when we lose our choices, we lose our capacity to shape our minds and our lives with intention and purpose. We not only belong to the world through the stories we tell, but we actually become the stories we tell. Our stories serve as prisons or portals, largely unknown to us, but their power is unmistakable. Even in our data-driven culture, narrative trumps data 
every time. The <laughs> Should I say that again? No. <laughs> the power of story is simply disproportionate to the actual information it provides. Its power lives in the meaning and wisdom it conveys or denies, the spirit it evokes or constrains, the possibilities it inspires or inhibits, and the hope and faith in new images of the future it either unfolds or shatters. Whatever the story, its power lives in the maps and the messages it creates in our minds, and what the mind maps it remembers, sometimes forever. I have a friend who's a very well-known architect, and she designed the Federal Morrow Building, the one destroyed by Timothy McVeigh. She approaches her work with two questions that I think have meaning for us. How might I make a building that works like a tree, she asks, one that preserves as much energy as it uses? How might I create a building that comes alive and is sustainable? But when she won the contract for the Morrow building, she asked another question. What is the story this building must tell? When she asked this question, she said the Hebrew phrase tikkun olam emerged for her. It means repairing the world. The new federal building would now tell a profoundly different story. It would tell a story of healing and hope. I think we have the same questions. What is the story we want our system of learning and schooling to tell our children? What is the story that will make them and their learning come to life? I hold a very simple premise construct, almost a mantra to me, about our work as leaders and what we can do to influence the development of our children's minds, and it goes like this. Mind shaping is world shaping. When we change the story, we change the map. When we change the map, we change the landscape. When we change the landscape, we change our experiences and our choices. And when we change our choices, we can change our minds. Changing the story changes everything. I believe our call to leadership is to name the story we are currently in as a choice so we can decide how we want to change it. Let me give you an example of the power of story to shape a community, and this happened within my own community. Several years ago, before the Math and Science Academy was to open for yet another year, the admissions staff came and told me that they had mistakenly sent letters of invitation to 32 children on the wait list. And it said, welcome to the Illinois Math and Science Academy. And they had not been admitted. Well, the staff was distraught. They said they would call each family member. They would apologize profusely. But we could not admit the kids. And I said, no. We had given our word, our integrity was at stake, so we would admit these children and welcome them. Well, you can imagine, this was a week before our school was to open again, that the news of my decision spread like wildfire. We needed everything. We needed new rooms, new beds, new mattresses, computers, resident counselors. The buzz 
both positive and negative in the community drowned out every other conversation because we had a week to make it happen. So somehow intuitively, I sensed that I needed to know what the community was saying. And I asked several staff members to write down every comment they heard and to send it to me anonymously. Then one evening, I read all the comments. And I was astounded at the emergence of two dominant patterns. It was clear that two narratives of the 32 were taking shape far below the radar and consciousness of the institution and far below my own. I called one the firestorm, a story of impending division and fragmentation and doom. I called the other the gift, a story of emerging community and possibility. And I decided then to use my traditional opening of the year comments to illuminate the patterns of these two emerging stories and present them as two possibilities for the future that were now unfolding quite unconsciously and invisibly. So I prepared, this was old technology, I prepared two visuals. The first I entitled The Firestorm, and it had a drawing of a blazing fire in the center. The second was called The Gift, and it had a picture of a big gift box with a great big bow. And surrounding each of these images, kind of like cartoon conversations, were the comments that told each story. I presented these patterns to the community as two yet-to-be-manifested narratives over which we had complete control. We could choose the story we wanted to live into. We could choose the firestorm and likely ensure we had a dismal year or we could choose the gift. Well, as the year unfolded and the students thrived, it was quite clear we had chosen to live the gift story. And I later heard from so many who wanted to live into this story but felt they lacked the courage to stand up to the loud voices of the firestorm advocates that the public naming of these two stories as options and choices gave them both a place to stand and an authentic voice in creating our future. So in response to the negative comments, all they had to say was, you're living into the firestorm and that is not my story. It became clear to me, almost an epiphany as a leader, that stories choreograph the life of a community. And they also choreograph our own. So when we change our stories, we do indeed change our choices. And when we change our choices, we can indeed change our minds. It's time to name and create a whole new story of learning and schooling. So our children have options to change their minds and choreograph the life that is theirs to live. So in the next few minutes, I want to shine a light on two understories. The current story of learning and schooling as I see it and the whole new story we must create. But first I want to say a couple things about learning so we start from the same ground. As human beings, learning is what we do. We are driven by perplexity. We are captivated by anomalies. 
We are intrigued by complexity and paradox. We are drawn to the impossible, and the more impossible, the better. Learning is the air we breathe. We are born with a unique constellation of intelligences so we can be inventors and explorers and scientists and artists and, artists and dancers and musicians and healers. But being born with these potentials is simply not enough. They must be activated by design in imaginative learning environments that honor, engage, invite, and nurture all of who we are. There is nothing more tragic, Mel Levine tells us, than capacity that is never developed. This is so fundamental to our understanding of the current understory of learning and school, schooling currently being lived with our children because their sense of efficacy, courage, creativity, resilience, and worth as a learner emerges from their learning identity. Whether they feel competent or inadequate, smart or dumb, confident or fearful, depends upon the perceptions they hold of themselves as a learner, and these perceptions come from the learning story and landscape they have been immersed in and asked to live by design. For better or for worse, our personal learning story creates a tenacious identity that becomes often a self-fulfilling prophecy, and it either constrains or enables our confidence and capacity for future learning. Let me give you an example of how incredibly resistant to change our learning identity is. Well, several years ago, I met a woman, about 10 years younger than I, really young, who told me that she couldn't sing. And she began the conversation in a very lighthearted way, but quickly she became very serious when I asked her how she knew she couldn't sing, because my third grade teacher told me, she said. Well, I was stunned, but that was 50 years ago. Surely you've sung since then. Surely you, she, you didn't believe what she told you. I did believe it, she said, and I still do. From that day, I stopped singing, even in the shower. I have not sung in 50 years. There is nothing more tragic than capacity that is not developed. Our mind does not distinguish between what it sees and what it remembers. And what she remembered for 50 years was the firestorm the story that she could not sing. Here's another example, and it's more recent. I read it in a recent New York Times book review, and it's about the writer, the, the horror writer, mystery writer Stephen King. The author of the review wrote, when King was a boy, his classmates actually paid him to write scary stories. Then came his first brush with a critic, Miss Hissler, don't you love the name, the school principal. King described the encounter in this way. What I don't understand, Stevie, Miss Hissler said, is why you'd write junk like this in the first place. King said her words cut him deeply. I was ashamed, he said, and I have spent a good many years since, far, far too many, I think, being ashamed of what I write. 
Shame and humiliation are, of course, always hurtful and very difficult to overcome. But in the context of learning and the development of minds, they are lethal. Who we become as a learner comes from many factors, heredity, our past and present experiences, opportunities, curiosity, motivation, but it is also profoundly shaped by how we are asked to learn, by the maps and landscapes of the learning and schooling story in which our mind and our worldview are shaped by design. Every way of knowing becomes a way of living, Parker Palmer tells us. Every epistemology becomes an ethic. Every mode of education, no matter what its name, is a mode of soul-making. So I believe we have to ask children some very different questions at the dinner table. Not what did you learn in school today, but how did you learn in school today? Not what did we teach, but how did we teach? And who have you now become? Why is this so fundamental to us in this most remarkable of professions? Because only when children engage in powerful questions will they learn to explore or inquire and connect to wonder. Only when they engage in discovery and pattern recognition will they learn to seek and discern relationships. Only when they engage in solving significant problems will they learn to creatively and ethically resolve complexity and not be afraid of what they don't know. How we engage the minds of our children shapes their story and their thinking, and their thinking shapes the world. So if a child is immersed in a fragmented learning story and landscape, grounded in transmission and acquisition and memory and competition and prescription and compliance and uniformity and winning and fear, they will see the world themselves and others very differently than if they were grounded in a story and landscape of engagement and meaning and wholeness and creativity and inquiry and collaboration and personalization and exploration and trust and love. Learning is not an inert transaction. It is a live encounter. It is a continuous engagement in and unfolding of possibilities. Learning is not a contract. It's a covenant between the elders and the young. It is, in the words of Jacques Cousineau, a mentored odyssey. I love that construction. A mentored odyssey and a courageous journey that changes everything. So let's look now at the two stories of learning and schooling. And we'll do so through the messages, the understory that I believe each sends to our children. So just imagine sitting down with a child whom you love. You might picture your own children. You might picture kids in your class. You might picture your grandchildren. Just imagine sitting down with this child whom you love and telling her the following. There are ten points. Number one. This is the current story. You are either born smart or not. Your intelligence is all in your genes. It's fixed at birth, and you can't really do much to change it. You must try as hard as you can, but your potentials are limited. 
Number two, really smart people are good at all school subjects. They're also good at taking tests. Even if you're good at other things like art and music and poetry and athletics or building things or inventing things or taking them apart, it still doesn't make you smart in school. Number three, everybody must learn at the same time and in the same way. If you learn differently by drawing or making models or creating music, you probably aren't as smart as everybody else. Number four, you can tell how smart you are by how well you do on tests. If you do well, you're probably, if you don't do well, you're probably not very smart. If you get A's, you're smart. If you get C's, you're not. Number five, learning and schooling are the same thing. If you're not successful in school, you probably won't be very successful in life. The learning you do outside of school really doesn't matter very much. There are, of course, exceptions, but you probably won't be one of them. Number six, competition is essential to success. So look out for yourself and don't spend too much time helping others. If you do, they may get a higher GPA than you. Number seven, learning is a solitary activity. You learn and study best when you're alone. So if you're learning with others, especially your friends, you're going to get distracted and probably learn less. Number eight, learning is serious work. If you're having fun, you're probably not learning very much. Solving problems that affect your community and the world are far too complex and hard for you now. You'll be ready to work on them when you get older, so just be patient. Number nine, your passion, your emotions, your intuition are not welcome or particularly useful in school. They distract you. They waste time. They take, get you and the class and the teacher off track. Besides, none of that stuff is on the test, so it's not very important. And finally, your goals and dreams are probably unrealistic and you will likely outgrow them when you get older and into the real world. The real world isn't about dreams. It's about being successful and winning and making money and having power. One person can't possibly make a difference in the world. Well, for many of you in the room, you may say, these are really, really harsh lessons. And, and you may think they're preposterous. You may say, we don't really tell our kids this. And of course, you're right. This is not the overstory. This is the understory. And it is the most enduring and timeless. And so for many of our children, it causes them to stop singing, even in the shower. But now, let's contrast this with the new story of learning and schooling that we are able, as leaders, to tell and to create. So now imagine sitting down with this same child or another whom you love and telling them this story. There are eight parts to this one. Number one, your brain can actually grow when it's challenged. The more you learn, the more your brain's connections grow. Our brain is amazingly flexible. We never stop learning, so keep challenging yourself and learn as much as you can. Number two, intelligence is not a single number, and it's not fixed at your birth. Each of us has many different intelligences, but they will remain hidden if you don't use them. So don't limit yourself or take the easy way out. Creating your own mind is the greatest gift you can give yourself and the world. Number three, Learning is a social activity. As human beings, we seek connections. So you will learn more deeply and you'll have more fun if you learn with others. 
learning flourishes in relationships. Number four, understanding big ideas, pursuing questions that matter to you and, the, and your community and the world and solving meaningful problems are what real learning is about. Doing well on standardized tests does not define or determine your intelligence. Tests are important, but they are only one piece of information about your achievement in school. They do not determine your potential to contribute in life. We need you to understand and help us resolve the problems in our world now. You do not need to wait, and we will not ask you to. Number five, you are a unique learner. There, was, there is no one else in the world exactly like you, so you can learn in your own way and your own time. Make mistakes, take risks, explore, fail, and ask for help. They are all part of learning. Discover what you love and pursue it with passion and without apology. You have a unique song that no one else in the world can ever sing. And if you don't sing it, it will never be heard. Number six, we are all works in progress and will never be finished. So don't think that just because you take something, you never have to take it again. Never shortchange your life by deciding to stop learning. Number seven, we nev never lose sight of your dreams. They are as possible as anyone else's. Dreams are maps, so pursue them with courage. And don't be afraid to bring your heart and your spirit to learning. Don't be ashamed to dream out loud and by day. The best dreams happen when you're wide awake. And finally, number eight. We are all connected. We and the earth are part of a whole living system. So every living being, no matter how small, influences the direction and behavior of the whole. You, too, can have a dramatic impact on the world for good or ill. So be wise about your choices. They can change the world. These are the messages our children must hear. This is the conversation we must have with them now. This is the story that they must be told. How smart are we really? How smart are our children really? The truth is we have no idea. But I believe it's safe to say that we and they are far more capable, far more imaginative, far more creative, far more creative and much, much smarter than test scores would have us believe. False proxies for learning that erode the potentially vibrant intellectual life of our children and our schools cannot become vehicles for wounding our children or making them feel helpless and unworthy. Finishing a course in a textbook does not mean achievement. Listening to a lecture does not mean understanding. Getting a high score on a standardized test does not mean proficiency. Credentialing does not mean competence. Focusing only on narrow definitions of academic success does not enable children to learn all of who they are. It does not connect them 
to their hearts and minds and spirits and to the wonder that is theirs to embrace. When information acquisition masquerades as learning and when high stakes tests masquerade as understanding, our children's motivation and ability to think creatively, critically, systemically, and long-term is diminished. Schooling, in my view, is a moral enterprise. So it is grounded in moral courage, not instrumentalism. The fundamental purpose of schooling is to transform minds. It is to liberate the goodness and genius of all children and to invite and nurture the power and creativity of the human spirit for the world. Schooling must awaken our children to the wonder and power of their hearts and minds for world shaping. And we have some remarkable tools now which causes us as educators to say, we have all we need. So what's the problem? Neuroscience tells us that we shape our world from the inside out. Thinking and learning actually affect the chemistry and structure of the brain. Jeffrey Schwartz from the University of California at Los Angeles calls this self-directed neuroplasticity. Our minds can change our brains. The very structure of our brain, the relative size of different regions, the strength of connections between them, and even their functions affects the lives we have led, Sharon Begley tells us. Like sand on a beach, the brain bears the footprints of the decisions we have made, the skills we have learned, the actions we have taken. So our children must understand that their remarkable potentials for mind and world shaping comes from landscapes and a story that tells them that learning is about discovery, not directives, reflections, not rules, possibilities, not prescriptions, diversity, not dogma, creativity, not conformity, meaning, not mandates, and curiosity, not certainty. As leaders, we must be very, very, very clear about this. This new story is not new age thinking. This new story is not wishful thinking. It is not an optimistic and hopeful fabrication of how we wish learning to be. Hope is essential for transformation, but it is not a strategy. This new story is whole because it is naturally right by design. It's grounded in the knowledge of how we naturally learn, how intelligences are identified and activated, how emotions influence learning and attention. Our children must become fluid cognitive navigators and our learning landscapes must encourage them to use and integrate the power of all the ways they come to know. And I think about this as our work to develop what I'm calling both and minds, integral thinking, so that our kids use the power of their intellect and their imagination, 
the power of information and relationships, the power of the algorithmic and the aesthetic, the power of observation and intuition, of reason and passion, of skepticism and wonder, of expertise and wisdom. Igniting and honoring both and minds nurtures whole children. Children who know they are whole, who know their story is part of a bigger, more transcendent story, and who know they belong. They know and embrace their gifts, they know their own minds, and they know who they are, alone and together. Whole children are children who have consciously and intentionally become themselves. They know what their name is on. They know what brings them alive, and they know what they love. Whole children stand in the world with their arms wide open so everything can come closer. I want to spend a moment on this idea, these last two ideas, about love in learning and standing in the world with our arms wide open so that everything comes closer. One of the most profound stories for me about the power of love and learning is the story of the great scientist Barbara McClintock. She died several years ago when her obituary was on the front page of the New York Times, a place typically reserved for heads of state. She was arguably the greatest American biologist of the century and the greatest American scientist of the 21st century. In her obituary, she was eulogized by one of her colleagues as a mystic who knew where the mysteries lie, but did not mystify. As a young woman, McClintock became fascinated with genetic transposition, and she wanted to know how genes moved and how they carried their messages from place to place. But in her day, there were none of the instruments we have, so she just could rely on hunches and imagination and hypotheses and clues and, and her powers of creative thinking. She engaged deeply in genetic science using these internal tools, but the price she paid for a long, long time was marginalization. Her work was distrusted. She couldn't get grants. She could not get articles published until she won the Nobel Prize. Sweet victory, huh? And then, as they say, her dance card started getting filled up. Another scientist by the name of Evelyn Fox Keller told McClintock that she wanted to write her intellectual biography. So she asked her this question. I love this question. I love her answer even more. How do you do great science? How do you do great science? Here's what McClintock said. Now remember, here's a woman who was one of the most precise empirical observers and logical thinkers in American science. And here's what she said. Quote, about the only thing I can tell you about the doing of great science is that you somehow have to have a feeling for the organism. Well, as the story goes, Keller repeated the question again. She sort of didn't think that McClintock understood what she was asking her. Tell me, how do you do great science? 
Well, Parker Palmer, in his book, The Courage to Teach, recounts this story. And he said, McClintock paused again, and she thought about the ears of corn she had loved and worked with all her life. And so she said, again, really, all I can tell you about doing great science is that somehow you have to learn to lean into the kernel and listen. You have to love the corn. You have to lean into the kernel and listen. You have to love the corn. In Fox Keller's book on McClintock, she wrote, Barbara McClintock's relationship with ears of corn practiced the highest form of love, intimacy that does not annihilate difference. So, how can we help our children do great science and great mathematics and great art and great music and great history and great poetry when we immerse them in landscapes where we help them to listen, to lean into whatever it is they love and to love it. Love is a natural condition for great learning. It's also a natural condition for great teaching. It's also a natural condition for great leadership. Well, educating for love and wholeness is radical. It challenges our economic-based narrative and the power of its narrow definitions of success. And this success comes and has come at an enormous cost. Why can't Johnny and Susie read, write, and count is the central question of school reform. It's not a wrong question, but it's not enough, and it's far, far too small. So we must be the voices that ask for the deeper basics, the deeper basics of the human mind, heart, and spirit. I believe schooling has become hijacked. Schools are not corporate learning businesses. They are living learning systems. Students are not products or markets. They are children. They have hearts and minds, and how they are created will shape our future. Schooling is not a private contract to fix learning deficiencies. It's a public covenant to ignite and nurture abundant potentials. G.K. Chesterton said that education is simply the soul of a society as it passes from one generation to another. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the soul we wish to pass to the seventh generation? Last year, you may recall reading a terrific article in a Denver paper about a kindergarten teacher who won the Kinder Excellence in Teaching Award, $100,000 prize, the biggest monetary award in education. And when she was asked what she did to encourage her children's success, she said, I try to create as much beauty, order, dignity, and love as I can. Every word, every action tells the children I believe they can learn at extraordinary levels 
Every time I ask them to do something hard, I say, why am I asking you to do this? And they say back in unison, because I'm brilliant. I love that story. So what would our schools be like? What would our children be like? What might our world be like if each and every child were invited to learn in a landscape that immersed them in as much order and dignity and love as we could and enabled each of them to live the I am brilliant story because that is what they are. That is who they are. The visions we present to our children shape the future, Carl Sagan said. It matters what those visions are. Often they become self-fulfilling prophecies. Dreams are maps. So what will it take to create a learning landscape that waters the deep roots of learning and not the leaves of schooling, as Thich Nhat Hanh reminds us? It will take a new story. It will take being very clear about what we are saying yes to. It will take knowing what is precious to us. It will take being very clear about the soul we wish to pass. And it will take our life-affirming leadership. But there's a catch to our life-affirming leadership. It is my belief that we cannot create what we have not become. We must become the new story we want to tell by leaning into its promise and by listening to it in our children and by loving it and them. So I think it's our time. I think we are so lucky to be educators living right now because we can. We have the means. We have the knowledge. And we do have the courage to give voice, form, legitimacy, and momentum to this new story. One that waters the roots of learning and creates a landscape for nurturing whole and connected minds. And I believe it is this story that will bring learning and schooling to life. Remember the words of Ben Okri. Stories are the secret reservoir of values. Change the stories individuals or nations live by and tell themselves. And you change the individuals or nations. Changing the story changes everything. I'd like to close um, because I have been asked to do this, and I thank those people who asked me, with a poem that I shared a couple days ago at the whole child uh, session. Uh, it's a poem that I wrote with my grandchildren in mind, um, but I share it with you because I think we hold all of our children in mind. And it's called The Real Story. It happens imperceptibly, so silently, so slowly. We cannot know the time nor place. We cannot name the day nor moment. We cannot tell when we came to know that to become ourselves, we had to hide ourselves. We had to protect our souls, sequester our spirits, and learn to doubt our gifts and what we knew we really loved. We are not born alone, empty, or lost. We are born into the vibrant web of life, 
open to wonder, creativity, and the abundant possibilities of life and learning. Breathing in the joy of exploration and discovery, singing with the wind, dancing with the trees, blossoming with the first buds of spring. We did not know what we could not or should not do or be. We were free to play, to wonder, to try out all of whom we might become. Buoyed by our own imagination and embraced by a palpable yet transcendent field of connections and belonging so big, it took our breath away. But slowly, new and older voices began to tell a different story, began to ask us to live a different story. They told us that wonder and awe and imagination were only for the young, that we would outgrow them, and that the world they called real would soon teach us to change our minds about everything about the joy of exploration and discovery, about singing with the wind, about dancing with the trees, about blossoming with the first buds of spring, about belonging to the world, ourselves, and one another. And gradually, just as they said we would, we became the story they told us. The wind still embraced us, but we had no time for singing. The trees still danced, but we dared not join them. And the first blossoms of spring emerged without us becoming a part of their flowering. But as gradually as we became lost, we were re-invited into the world our hearts and souls and spirits had always known was truly real. A new story was being told. A story of meaning and mystery, of wholeness and wonder, of imagination and connections, of life and learning. And it was living this story that returned me to who I am. It was living this story that reconnected me to the natural world, to the song of the wind, to the dance of the trees, to the flowering of the first buds of spring. It was living this story that returned me to myself and told me that I am not alone, empty or lost. It was living this story that brought me back to life and told me I belong. Mind shaping is world shaping. When we change the story, we change the map. When we change the map, we change the landscape. When we change the landscape, we change our experiences and our choices. And when we change our choices, we can change our minds. Changing the story changes everything. This, I believe, is our call to leadership. I thank you for being here today. Godspeed. Thank you. Thank you very much.